This podcast was recorded and produced on unceded Woiwurrung, Wangal, Bunjalung and Gadigal country. The powerhouse acknowledges the traditional owners and their continuous connection to country and pays respects to elders past and present. You're listening to Oscillations, a series of stories about things that pulse and fluctuate, from heartbeats to brainwaves and economic cycles to cosmic orbits. Drawing from the Powerhouse Museum's collection, we've invited seven artists, journalists, poets and curious people to interpret this material culture and tell their stories. In the early hours of July 12, 1979, the silent remains of Skylab fell from orbit, pushed back to Earth by NASA. Fragments of America's first space station drew burning lines across the sky. Small parts vaporised in the atmosphere, while larger pieces fell into the Indian Ocean and onto parts of Western Australia. One piece, the end cap ripped from an oxygen tank, was found by a stockman who noticed his cows drinking rainwater from it. This is object number 942541-1. In Alexandra Spencer's story, Stella Nullius, she takes us into our growing extraterrestrial junkyard to explore the electricity, ecology and ethics of our exploration beyond the sky. This is the sound of natural radio emissions from space, generated by lightning storms in the Earth's atmosphere and the Sun's solar wind interacting with the magnetosphere. I recorded these spherics and tweaks in Kayama on a cliff by the sea. It was summer, January. I took off my shoes, grounding the signal with my bare feet on the rock and my hand on the receiver. And this is a USSR satellite fragment that I met recently. I'm tapping it gently with a soft mallet and using a paintbrush to trace its circumference, jagged and burnt from free-falling through the Earth's atmosphere, landing in rural New South Wales at some point in the 60s or 70s. When a satellite reaches the end of its lifespan, it either gets sent up into what is known as the graveyard orbit or down, burning up in the Earth's atmosphere or sinking within the spacecraft cemetery in the nether regions of the Pacific Ocean. This location is known as Point Nemo, somewhere between Chile and New Zealand. It's the most remote place on Earth, home to more than 260 pieces of spacecraft debris. Marine pollution can be caused by spillage of toxic rocket propellants and radioactive chemicals present in the spacecraft. But it's really difficult to gauge what substance remains after re-entry. Point Nemo's location within the South Pacific Garbage Patch, within the South Pacific Gyre, allows few nutrients to circulate within its waters. 
and it exists beyond the legal jurisdiction of any country. So no one comes to claim the debris that lies dormant on the ocean floor. And yet, a recent discovery found some of the longest living life forms deep within this section of subsea floor. Microbes over 100 million years old. The idea of colonizing the moon or Mars because it's empty? It's like stellar nullius. The moon is empty, Mars is empty. Like, well, if it's only a certain form of existence, I mineral gases like the Venus. But we say it's nothing, there's nothing there. Or whatever is there has no ethical or political claim on its own form of existence. So we can go and do whatever we want. It was the Skylab, NASA's first space station, that initially sparked concern about the disposal of spacecraft debris. This was the first large object to make an uncontrolled re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. In 1979, the entire spacecraft fell out of orbit. It burned up and scattered debris across the Indian Ocean and the Nullarbor Plain. Miss Universe America was sent in a media stunt to find the Skylab debris, but it was a local stockman who discovered this piece of the oxygen tank, lying in a field collecting rainwater. His cows were using it as a water bowl. The local shire issued NASA with a $400 littering fine, although NASA never paid the fee. Our space debris disposal methods now minimise human risk, but the ecological repercussions of increased space exploration remain unresolved. Since 1957, more than 5,000 space launches have led to over 100 million pieces of space junk. There are currently 2,000 active and 3,000 dead satellites in Earth's orbit, as well as launch vehicles, paint flakes, frozen rocket effluent, and a spatula that an astronaut accidentally dropped once. comes along and hits the spacecraft, it's blacker paint. Although the majority of these pieces are just a millimetre big, they can cause serious damage upon impact due to their orbiting speeds of 8 kilometres per second. And in April earlier this year, the ISS had to make an emergency move to get out of the way of an incoming piece of debris. It's going fast relative to the spacecraft, so it vaporizes the paint particle and a little bit of the spacecraft, and that gives you a little cloud of hot gas. It's hot enough that it's ionized. What does it mean for us to be so intent on progress that the oceans and the skies, these vast, awe-inspiring places, get treated as junkyards? What are the ethical implications of littering on such a large scale? 100 million pieces orbiting the Earth. According to international law, like you can't just grab any object. Debris still belongs to someone. You need to get permission before you, you do anything with it. And for a lot of objects, we don't know who they belong to. Various methods that have been proposed include like lassoes, nets, adhesive foam. It's called active debris removal or ADR. High-powered lasers. The problem is um, that anything that's capable of grabbing a piece of debris or removing a piece of debris is also capable of doing that to an active satellite. So they're considered very much dual-use technologies. And the concern is that they could be weapons.
1956, a year before Sputnik, Forbidden Planet was the first film to be released with an entirely electronic score composed by Louis and B.B. Barron. At the film's premiere, the audience broke out in spontaneous applause at the sounds of the spacecraft landing. The Barons had created these sounds using basic homemade oscillators recorded and manipulated onto tape. These sounds held no historical lineage, no sonic reference point. They were quite literally alien. The Barons didn't consider their process as music composition. Their circuit-generated sound treated not as notes, but as actors, voltage-controlled life forms. The sounds of the spacecraft circling Altair sound a lot like this plasma wave recording captured by a satellite encircling Saturn. It's a funny coincidence that early electronic music and space exploration developed alongside each other. Our latest plans for space exploration involve using the Moon as a lunar gateway, the development of a fuel station that orbits the Moon, Moon bases built directly onto the Moon, and the extraction of frozen water and minerals from the surface of the Moon. The Outer Space Treaty prevents any one nation from claiming sovereignty over the Moon, and restricts celestial activity that harmfully interfere with something someone else is doing. Commercial Moon mining is a grey area. And Australia, with our remote mining expertise, has already signed a deal with NASA to develop a rover set for the moon. This is the pilot episode of Gumby that aired in 1955. Gumby finds a spaceship and accidentally flies it to the moon. A decade later, Morton Subotnik used a Buchla synthesizer to compose Silver Apples of the Moon. It's uncanny that early electronic music explorations using analog synthesizers and magnetic tape sound similar to sonified radio emissions from space that we can only gather today with advanced technology. That this album from 1967 sounds like electromagnetic waves gathered from Jupiter's largest moon by a satellite in 1996. But then again, both the basic sonic translations of the electrical energy that surrounds us. When the Voyagers went uh, past Uranus and Neptune and Saturn, for instance, through the ring plane, they were peppered by lots of little dust particles hitting the spacecraft. If you listen to the sound, you know, the reason those super high frequency, you know, radioactive waves are so scary is because depending on the type of waves, be it gamma or beta, you know, some of them travel through solid in the audio range. You hear these as you go through the ring I built a foxhole radio last month to listen in on the myriad of radio transmissions floating around and through us consisting of a copper coil, an ionized razor blade, and a graphite pencil. These rudimentary radios were developed during World War II to receive international broadcasts. In the 1960s, a US research lab launched more than 350 million tiny copper needles into the ionosphere to make it even more bouncy for their radio transmissions. 
millions of copper needles floating in space that allowed communication to be more efficient for just a couple of months. Half a century later, some of these needles still orbit our planet in clumps. Others fell to Earth, too small to burn up in the atmosphere. There's a phenomenon called the Kessler Syndrome. It's the concern that if space exploration continues carelessly, space debris will proliferate exponentially. One collision creating more debris, resulting in further collisions, until all that floating junk means we're unable to leave the Earth. so carelessly eager to leave that we end up trapped within an orbiting cloud of our own debris. Alexandra Spence with Stella Nullius. Alex is a sound artist and musician based in Eora Lands in Sydney. Through her practice, she reimagines the intricate relationships between the listener, the object, and the surrounding environment as a kind of communion or conversation. She's presented her work worldwide and released music with Room 40, Long Form Editions, More Mars with MP Hopkins, Canti Magnetici, and Mappa. Thanks to Annie Handmer, Ivor Cairns, Alan F. Jones, Martin Gottfried, Sarah Reeves and the collections team at the Powerhouse. The piece's title comes from Elizabeth Povinelli. The Oscillations team includes me, John Chia, Aisha Ash, Callum Cooper, Marish Vertweger and Kara Stewart. The commissioning editor is Lisa Haveler. Erin Hyde composed our theme music from recordings of the museum's objects. And special thanks to Emily McDaniel. In the next episode of Oscillations... Beep. I tend to get as close to the middle of the corner as I can, then I'll turn and try and zero in on where the sound's coming from. Beep. Beep. Push to Walk, a people's history of the pedestrian crossing button. Subscribe to our channel and we'll catch you next time.